This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Shared breath. Uh, It's interesting because you go back, oh, I don't know, a couple months ago and I had... I think it was called the sharing of the body. And now I have the shared breath. I'm lacking creativity, obviously, in my names. And yet, for Leslie and I, this is actually a very intimate and, and personal statement. And you'll understand why as we progress. But I want to share something with you that you'll understand at a, a greater level when you enter into marriage relationship, this idea will become more and more crystallized. It's like hearing about the fatherhood of God and not being a parent. Sometimes there's one step removed. You can understand it and you can be right in in your understanding, but you understand it in in an experiential way as you take steps forward in maturity. And just in your intimate relationship with Jesus, this is a a very precious uh, truth and reality. Uh, Subtitle, A Study in the Inconceivable Mercy of the heavenly husband. Uh, An excerpt from Barracks 28. I don't know if you've ever heard of Barracks 28, but I wrote a a book to Leslie for our 20th wedding anniversary, which would be about two and a half years ago. So we're 22 and a half years married. Isn't that amazing? It's a weird thought to think that I could have a uh, near 22-year-old child right now, and all of you would nod along and say that'd be totally normal. Uh, but uh, so it took us 10 years to have our first, so Hudson's 12 and a half, you know, so isn't that, you can just sort of do all the math on that, and it it lines up. Uh, But uh, there's something very, very precious that Leslie and I have discovered. Uh, I wrote this to her, and I wanted to share, I think it's right around, it would be considered like chapter four, but it's more story number four. It's an open house to our 20 years of marriage at the time, and it was basically to crystallize and to remember what God had done. But I named, well, Leslie and I have a name for our marriage. I mean, most people would never think of naming their marriage. We, we have a name for our marriage, and the name is Barracks 28. And that doesn't sound very sweet and romantic, I recognize, but it's very sweet and romantic for us. Uh, in uh, the book, The Hiding Place, one of our favorite uh, books to read together. We go through it probably at least once a year, uh, and we've done it for decades. Uh, it's the story of Corey and Betsy Tenboom, and they were taken to Ravensbrook because they had shown mercy to the Jews and taken them into their house when the Gestapo was trying to find them, and they hid them. Well, they shared the similar fate with the Jews, and they were taken to a concentration camp where their father, Casper Tenboom, died and where Betsy died as well, her sister, and, she, and Corey uh, went through extreme suffering. But they stayed in a barracks called Barracks 28. And uh, it was said of that barracks, it was the crazy place where they still hoped. And that's the way Les and I look at our marriage. We're in a war zone. Uh, what we've stood up for, Les and I, when we sort of decided to stand for Jesus Christ when we were first married. Our love story was so unique that we wrote it down in a book. That book went all over the world. We were invited all over the world to speak. And we had no idea what we were stepping into. We at first thought it was happily ever after romance, that this is that the way that uh, fairy tales work is the way that the Christian life works, and that you just sort of skip off into a sunset holding hands. What we didn't understand is that people would start firing bullets at us. Uh, metaphorically speaking. And we had no grid for what we ran into, and that something that we ran into was difficulty. And we looked at difficulty, because we're good Americans, we looked at difficulty as a bad thing. And what Leslie and I have come to, 22 and a half years later, but I wrote about this two and a half years ago, so obviously we'd come to that, is that the great secret to our success, the great secret to our intimacy, isn't 
the songs and the skips and the rainbows. It's the difficulty. That's our secret. You see, some people try their entire life to avoid it, but when you embrace the challenges in life and you do it together and you get a smile in the midst of it and you sing a song because of the difficulty, it actually brings you closer. It knits you in a way that nothing else can. Now, what I just described for you was a spiritual truth. You want to get to know Jesus Christ, you learn to embrace the difficulty, and you will find that as you sing in the prison cell, you will be knit closer to your heavenly husband, Jesus Christ. And so what Leslie and I have found in an earthly marriage is the very same thing we've discovered in a heavenly marriage. And it's not my marriage I want to impart to you today. I want to impart to you something all of us can partake of, and that is the heavenly marriage. So I took tale or story number four out of this book, and I wanted to just read it to you, because I think it would really blend well with what we're going to talk about today. This story is called The Lack, and boy, uh, I remember this well. Uh, First year of marriage. In that first year of marriage, Barracks 28 was not yet named Barracks 28. Technically, we didn't have a name for it, but if we had, we certainly would have referred to it with nomenclature much more innocent and sweet. I was 24, Leslie was 19, we were young, innocent of much, struggling to understand things like insurance premiums and personal tax returns. We had been searching high and low for another place to live, but the $300 a month we were paying for our flea-infested lodge by the lake was hard to beat. I had a job, it didn't pay a lot, but we had something. But a fixed income is exactly that, fixed. Our original budget included enough to rent this $300 place by the lake. We had maybe a $200 buffer each month, but those of you who were married know how likely a buffer is to still exist come the end of the month. Everything we looked at in the newspaper was out of our price range. The closest thing to our $300 current rent price was $550. So we went and checked the place out. It was situated next door to a known drug dealer in the area, and let's just say there was reason why it was the cheapest place for rent in all of Kalamazoo, Michigan. There was no way I was going to leave my wife there every day while I was at work. The next best option came in around $700. It was small, but it was clean, so we snagged it up. We didn't technically have the money for it, but as a new husband, I had to do something to move us into a more viable living place. After all, a house full of raccoons and fleas is certainly fun, but not ideal for the long haul. This move to West Main Street, you've missed some stories before this. Uh, This move to West Main Street was amazing for the two of us. Leslie, Leslie fixed up the place the way Betsy fixed up Barracks 28. She made it heaven. Without a dime to spend, she somehow made it beautiful. It was ours, and it was without fleas. But this move to West Main Street also came with some new challenges. We had absolutely Zippo in the bank, in our pockets or in our catch-all drawer in the kitchen. We used everything we had to make it through each day. Corey Tenboom used to tell the story of her vitamin bottle. While in the concentration camp, Corey somehow had a Bible and a vitamin bottle. These were her daily sustenance and neither emptied throughout her entire time. As strange as it sounds, her vitamin bottle never emptied. Like the widow's oil, it never ran dry. 20 years of marriage has shown me something very similar. In Barracks 28, I can testify that neither the truth of God's word nor the vitamin bottle have ever run out. But to say it was easy to have nothing in the bank nearly every day for our first year of marriage wouldn't be honest. It was extremely difficult. As a man, I yearned to supply richly for my new bride, to adorn her in jewels, and to ensure that she was clothed in the most posh clothing. But I simply couldn't do it. I was a romantic with a limp. I had big dreams, but God had given me something precious. He was teaching me how to give my wife something even better than earthly substance. I'll never forget the great test of 1995. Our friends were coming in from Colorado for a visit. It was the first time any of our friends from Colorado had come for a visit since we got married back in December. It was a big deal. Somehow we paid for the gas to and from Chicago to pick them up from the airport. We arrived back at our little condo and were filled with such excitement. They toured the place and we showed them the makeshift guest room. They asked for an ironing board to spruce up their clothes. We obliged. Everyone was smiling, and then it happened. Leslie grabbed the hot iron to pull it away, but it was still on. She burned her hand. It wasn't really a terrible burn, but it needed some ointment. We had $8 to our name. This was the money that we knew needed to carry us through this entire week with our guests. And our guests had no idea that we didn't have any way of feeding them. Without hesitation, I hopped into the car with my friend Ryan, and we headed off to the drugstore to pick up some burn medication. All $8 was spent on a singular bottle of ointment. 
Gulping, I hopped back into my red Camry and began the drive back to our snug little condo on West Main. On the trip home, a policeman noticed that my right front headlight was out and pulled me over. He gave me a ticket and said that I wouldn't need to pay the $100 fine if I got the headlight fixed in this next week and had a policeman sign off that the work was done. Gulping, I started back up the car and drove home. Les and I clung to each other that night and prayed. It was a desperate form of praying. The fleas were a test, but this constant niggling ache of having nothing was an entirely different sort of trial for our marriage. But like the fleas, it brought us together. Corey and Betsy used to share the same pillow in their barracks 28 bunk. They didn't do this because it was more pleasant. They did it out of necessity. So tight were the women packed inside that building. Corey and Betsy's noses would often be touching throughout the night, and they shared each other's breath. This is our marriage. In many ways, you could call our marriage a shared pillow and a shared breath. In nights like this, Leslie and I learned to breathe our prayers in unison and often in tears. It was the following day that I picked up the mail. In the mailbox was a letter from Leslie's Aunt Pat. A financial surplus had come into her life, and she wanted to share a bit of it with us. There was a check for $100 inside that envelope. Startled and bewildered by the timing of this strange gift, I held back the tears, walked through the living room, passed my house guests, and found Leslie in the kitchen. I tapped her on the shoulder and silently pointed to the letter. I unfolded it for her to see the check, and together, in the sacred silence of that moment, we shared the joys that only those that share a common pillow and a common breath can fully appreciate. Tears streamed down both our faces. That same day, our dear friends, the Staples, had invited us over for a barbecue. They wanted to meet our Colorado friends, and so with joy, we drove to their house in our red Camry. Doug Staples, the father, overheard some kerfuffle about Eric being pulled over last night by a policeman. He silently slipped out the door into his driveway and looked at my car. The next day, he went into town and bought the parts, and then called me up on the phone. Eric, Doug said, it appears that I have the parts to fix your camera here at my house. Why don't you four come over for dinner again tonight, and we'll get things fixed up for you. We had nothing, no food even, and even the meals were provided. Only God could turn empty pockets in an impossible situation into such a picture of his faithfulness. Leslie, we have shared a common pillow and a common breath for 20 years now. And all I can say is thank you for allowing me so close. Thank you for breathing the breath of heaven alongside me. And thank you for being willing to live a life of dependence. I'm not a rich man in a material sense, but I have found that material riches are not the secret to lasting love and marital bliss, but that the secret is simply having Jesus. Most of you have never considered naming your life, or maybe your marriage, if you have one, but you might as well start now by considering such things. Barracks 28, I know it's taken. It's sort of like the name Jim or Bob. It's been taken, but you still name your kids that sometimes. If you want, I'll share it with you. Technically, Corey and Betsy shared it with me. It's a place that none of us would choose to go or we would want to name our life. For instance, you're sort of like a barracks too. You could call it the cottage in Windsor but you're sort of like the barracks 28 in the midst of hostile territory. And when you start looking at it as a positive and you begin to find it as an endearing term, it's amazing how it switches everything in your life. Because for us, this is beautiful. We share a same pillow and we share a common breath. And actually, that's beautiful. So... That's the beginning of this message. You'll sort of begin to understand why I started with that as we progress, because that's life with Jesus. What the hostile territory in which we live leads us to is it leads us back to the pillow where he sleeps. You see, many of us have found a sufficiency in ourselves, and we don't recognize that difficulty is our friend, and we have tried to live this life on our own, and therefore, the pillow upon which Jesus sleeps, he sleeps alone. And he's inviting us back to it, to sleep nose to nose with him. 
and to share our life with his so that he can share his life with us. Way back in the day, so this is 23 plus years ago, when I met this girl named Leslie and we had decided that we were going to get married. Uh, that was actually three years even before that. So, uh, but 23 years ago, I proposed, uh, April 25th, 23 years ago. And in the process of preparing for marriage, one of the key things that Leslie's father wanted me to understand was the idea of covenant. And he said, Eric, if you're going to marry my daughter, you really need to understand this. You need to understand what a covenant is. It's not a contract. A covenant isn't the type of thing where you have an agreement, and if that person fails on their side, then you're just out. A covenant is binding. It's basically till death parts you. And so it's a mentality. It's an idea I want you to have cultivated within you. And so I started studying covenants, and it's an exchange. It's an exchange that's uh, basically like in a, in a ceremony, a wedding ceremony, you exchange vows, and you exchange rings, but you're also exchanging life. In other words, my life for yours. I, I share everything I am, everything I have, everything about me now belongs to someone else, and they have access to that, and everything they are belongs to me. It's a sharing. It's a picture of the heavenly realms. You see, the covenant that we have with Jesus is an exchange, an exchange of life. I give up my life, and what do I receive? I receive his. Many of us haven't understood that we need to give up our life, and as a result, we haven't ever really received his. You see, we have Christianity in name, in concept, and we believe the right things, but we don't recognize that an exchange, a covenant, involves a letting go, a giving up, saying, here's my life. And as a result, we receive his. So in this process, I remember studying about uh, the Native Americans. It was studying about covenant all over the world. Covenant has been an understood idea in all sorts of different cultures. Ironically, the one culture that doesn't seem to have a grip on it is ours. We understand contract. We don't understand covenant. And I remember hearing about the Native Americans that it was so serious in Native American culture to, to keep covenant that if someone violated covenant, you would hunt them down and kill them and their entire family for, what was it, 10 generations? <laughs> okay, whoa. In other words, this matters. Now, that's, that might not even been, even been a redeemed perspective. And yet to see the weight that cultures have placed upon this and to see the lack of understanding we have for it, to recognize that God has offered us a covenant and he has extended his grace to us and said, will you enter into covenant with me? It's pretty amazing. When I was marrying Leslie, we, we had all sorts of unique qualities to our love story. That's why it ended up in a book. It was quite the, uh, the earth-shaking thing at the time. No one had ever heard of a relationship like ours. And so people were asking us all over the world to come and speak. They wanted to hear our story. They wanted to have us speak on radio. They wanted us to speak to their schools. They wanted us to tell our story. And what was interesting is we had a very strange pastor that did the sermon, or that did the ceremony, I'm sorry, and uh, he was very passionate about covenant, far more than even I realize I should be. And in fact, this is what he had us do. He said, hey, I don't do a lot of weddings anymore. In fact, I really don't like to do weddings anymore because I'm sick and tired of ha having someone say I do and then they don't. Uh, so here's what I'm going to say. If I'm going to marry you guys, then I want you to sign this first. It's a legal document. I'm like, what? what do you mean, a legal document? He says, yeah, it basically says you can't get a divorce. So I signed a legal document that says we can't get a divorce. Yeah, so if you have marital problems, you have to go fix it. You can get you know, someone to step in and help you, walk through it, uh, like mediation, but you can't get a divorce. You hear me? You ready to sign that? I guess. I mean, what a strange thing. I've never even heard of anything like that. You cannot get a divorce. No, I mean legally. You cannot get a divorce. So... I don't know who has this legal document, okay? I actually never saw it. I don't know that it was filed with the public records or anything. 
However, I signed it. You know what that's done for Leslie and I? We never have even considered, in the midst of any trial, any suffering we've had, any argument we have, it's not even an option for us. It was removed from the table before we even began. Isn't that a fascinating idea? You know what? I think there's something to that. You know, God removed that from the table with us a long time ago. He's not thinking, hey, you know, boy, they sure aren't holding up their end. And he's looking for a way out. You see, when God enters into something, he enters into it for good. And this mentality, this idea is, is missing. I'm going to go through this I, the idea of divorce here real quick. And I'm not, this isn't a teaching on divorce. Uh, the reason this actually got into my turnstile is our pastoral team, we go through different doctrinal issues just so that we can sort of ratify as a team, as a group, where we stand so that we can have common counsel to everyone in the church as opposed to this guy has this opinion, this guy has this opinion. And so we wrestle through it to come to a place of agreement. It's actually quite the unique challenge simply because we're not all coming from the same exact vantage point. But we do start with the same root, and that's it's all about Jesus, and his word is in fact the word of God, and it all points to Jesus. And so we have the right starting point, but in, in an issue like divorce, and then you get to like divorce and remarriage, those are, those are doozies. I mean, that has to actually rank up there as one of the most challenging issues any pastor can face today is knowing how to deal with this. And part of the challenge is when you start out, like say we're, we're starting right now with the topic of divorce and remarriage. Well, in a group even this size, there's a lot of divorce and remarriage that already pre-exists. What do you do? Uh, how do you handle these things? It's a complexity. It's a compounding of issues. And that's not what I'm talking about today. I don't want you to get lost and distracted with that. But that's what led to this. And so one of the thoughts that I had was to sort of divide up divorce into two categories. There's two degrees of it. And even legally throughout the world today, there's actually two degrees of divorce. I know that sounds strange. Legally speaking, I'm going to give you some Latin here. Uh, the first one is divorcea mensa et thoro. Uh, you guys don't need to remember these things, but that's what it's called. It's a legal separation with hope of reconciliation. So a mensa et thoro means from bed and board. So it's a divorce from bed and board or from having access to the table and to the bed. And so in other words, there's something in the relationship that has created a breach or a, or a desire for separation, a need for separation, whether that's abuse or whether that's something else. And as a result, there is a divorce, but this isn't the divorce as many of you would have in your mind. Most of us would call this separation. However, conceptually, it is a pushing away or a casting off. And that's the idea in Scripture of divorce as a putting away. It's like, I can't deal with that. That is not something I can have. However, it is not a desire... For permanency of that, it is saying, in these circumstances, I can't be around that, okay? So that's the first kind. The second one is the one that most of us would be familiar with, and our culture has become, un unfortunately, very familiar with this. Uh, this is a hard one. Divorce aspero atem reconciliationis. Boy, don't test me on that one, that pronunciation. This is what it equals, legal divorcement, final dissolution of relationship without hope of reconciliation. It's over. It's done. Legally, it's done. It's finished. There is no coming back. It's a one way. So that long Latin statement means from hope of reconciliation. So it's a divorce that is legally final. Now what's interesting is to associate God with the idea of divorce. He hates divorce. That's one thing. You know what uh, he hates? Well, he hates all kinds of separation, if you want to say it that way. However, many of us have the notion that back in the Garden of Eden, this is the form of divorce God brought about for his bride, when in actuality it was the first kind. In other words, we were cut off from, what, bed and, and what, was, what was that statement? Bed and board. Because of sin and because of God's nature, there is a need for separation. And we were cut off, but because of God's love, he has sought us. He has sought us, even from the beginning, to see a reconciliation brought about. Sharing a pillow with our creator. 
Adam and Eve. You could say it this way. They shared a pillow with their creator. They shared a common breath. You see, when we talk about breath in Scripture, we need to divide it into two kinds of breath. Capital B and lowercase b. Every message I have now seems to have a capital and a lowercase. And it's very important for distinguishing between the God version of something and the human version. Because God says to, to Adam, hey, don't eat from this tree in the midst of the garden. Yeah, this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because the day in which you eat of it, you will surely die. You will lose capital B, breath. Because what's confusing for many of us is then they ate of the tree and they still live. We're like, what? That doesn't make any sense. No, no, they did die. They died in the God sense. They died to the capital B. They lost their spiritual life and they died spiritually. Now all they had left was a physical life. Still life, but it's small b. I made a capital B when I said that. Small b. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed life into his nostrils. And I capitalize these things just so you'd see that. The breath of life and man became a living being. Capital B and lowercase b, the breath and the breath. I had a young man, he was like a youth pastor up in Wisconsin that sat me down and says, I just wanted to share something with you. It's just a thought that has been going through my, my mind, and I just wanted to bounce it off you. And he said, uh, it's the value of breath. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. Uh, he said, if we understood that to live in these bodies on this earth was the most precious thing in all of God's creation, and we had the privilege of enjoying it, that even the angels would long to be in a body like ours and to have the breath in their lungs so that they could do the work of the king here. And yet they don't have that luxury. And anyone who has died would look back on this one season they had and recognize how short it was. And they wish they could go back to it and have just one breath. Just one. So he said, imagine what it would be like if you tried to put value to that, that breath. And the moment you died... If you imagine you were like Bill Gates or Warren Buffett and you had all the earthly substance, but if either of those men died, the first moment that they died and that breath was removed from them, that they would be willing to give up every bit of what they had to get one, of, one breath back. That's how valuable breath is. And he said, you think that's accurate, that breath is actually worth that much? I was thinking, I was like, you know what, that's a really good point. It's probably worth every single thing we have to have the opportunity to live. You know, as long as you are breathing, even if it's a small b, as long as you are breathing, you have hope of capital B. The moment you lose your lower b breath is the moment you are cut off. And there's a final divorcement and a disillusion of all hope forever. What happened in the garden? There was a divorce on mensa et thoro a separation from the shared breath and from intimate fellowship with God Almighty. You see, when man sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned, there was a separation. There is a form of divorce that took place. Do you remember they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, that intimate fellowship, that bed and board, that holy presence of God. They were separated from that. And flaming uh, swords that were held by, cher by cherubim literally blocked the way. Lest they eat of the tree of life and remain in that condition forever and ever. God had it in mind that he wanted to remove them from being locked into that position. So he separated them from that garden. And then, in the fullness of time, he sent forth his son to open up the way to the tree of life. If you look at the cross as the tree of life, it's a strange mental picture, but that is the tree of life. And how do you get there? In and through his suffering, in and through his wounds. When you come to Jesus, you have now access. He's like the fruit hanging from the tree. He says, now, you, the day in which you eat of that bad fruit, you die. But the day in which you eat of Jesus, when you eat of the tree of life, you come to the cross, that in that day you will live. What happens if we refuse to receive the gift of Jesus? 
If we receive in this lifetime, while we have lowercase breath and we still operate in these bodies, if in this lifetime we refuse to receive that gift of life in and through Jesus Christ, what happens? Then there will be a divorce, aspero atem reconciliation genius. I don't know how to pronounce that final N. I need to practice that. It means a final judgment, a cutting off from salvation, from rescue, from the hope of a shared pillow forever, and from the hope of intimate fellowship forever. I don't know if any of you have ever just pondered forever, but it's a long time. And if in the very moment you breathe your last, you wish you could just have one more, could you imagine the agony for all eternity recognizing that there is no more hope? You see, what I want us to focus on isn't the forever disassociated from God, but the forever I want you to focus on the fact that God has seen fit to bring back hope. He desires to reconcile with his bride. That's something that should get us excited. The reason I'm going to go into this, the justice of divorce. This is a strange uh, thing for us to look at, but there's a reason why I want to point this out. I am going to show you that it is perfectly just, and you could say, and right, for God to divorce us forever. It is perfectly right for us to be cast away from him. Perfectly just for him to do it. And he's just. So isn't that an amazing thought that justice, if served in our life, would drive us away and we would be cut off forever. But for whatever reason, God has seen fit to seek us out and to renew relationship with us. Pretty amazing. It's because mercy triumphs over justice. Just the justice of divorce. In Matthew 5, Jesus speaking, he says, Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, now what you're expecting to hear is, but I say to you, no man shall ever get a divorce. That's what you're expecting. See, Jesus is giving a higher law here in the New Testament. So it's this reference to the Old Testament law, which actually says a man can give a, 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 a bill or a certificate of divorcement to his, his wife. If she is unclean. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let her give her, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, if you were to think about it, some of you know that scripture, but if you were to think about it, you would have guessed Jesus would have gone higher than that. It's like, well, why don't you just say don't get a divorce? But he says, well, if there's unfaithfulness, it seems to be right, appropriate to divorce. That's, that's an appropriate reason. What would the just man do? So a man who is marked by God's justice, what would he do if he found that his wife was unclean? Well, we have an illustration here. And his name is Joseph. He's actually the adoptive father of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Then Joseph, her husband, has just found out, by the way, that Mary... <clears throat> must have been unfaithful. She's pregnant, okay? And so I'm not going to go into how uh, the biology of that works, but I'm going to say that something obviously has become, you know, uh, Joseph's been made aware, okay? This is not right, and he knows that he isn't the father. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, that's what it says. In this context, it actually says being a just man. So what he's going to do is just, According to the Bible, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. That's how the New King James says it. Now, the re I'm going to give you the NIV and the ESV and the RSV, just so you can see the terminology that they would have understood. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. He resolved to divorce her quietly. A just man divorcing a woman justly. Isn't that an interesting statement? It's like, whoa. Now, the reason I'm showing you this is to not promote divorce. It's to show you that even in God's law or his legal system, divorce has a place in justice. So what would a just man do? Well, he would divorce her, but he's just. He's going to do it quietly and respectfully. He's still going to show honor in how he does it. He's a just man, praise God. But don't miss the but. See, I, there's, a, there's more to this story. That story of 
Joseph, he intended to put her away secretly or to divorce her quietly. The next word is, but. You see, God comes in in this situation, and though justice would be divorce, respectfully, quietly, honorably, but divorce, but God intervenes, and the angel of the Lord speaks unto Joseph. You see, God wants to give another dimension of truth to this. Of course, she isn't unfaithful. She actually has a child because of the Holy Spirit. The law and the spirit, the legalities versus the love. It is just and right to divorce for unfaithfulness. Therefore, it would be just and right for God to cut us off forever. But, you see, it's important for us to understand that the law of God reveals perfect righteousness. But whereas judgment, if it had its way with all of us, would actually lead us to a thorough cutting off and we would be removed from that shared breath forever and always. That's justice. There is a mercy that triumphs over that judgment. And that mercy comes with that but. Though we are deserving of eternal separation from God and a a complete dissolution of any hope, any right to claim him as our own. But God has sought us out. Remember Solomon. Solomon is in the days of Joshua, and he was the prince in the line of Judah who married the prostitute Rahab from Jericho. Well, that's a strange thing to do. You see, what does the law say? Well, you don't marry Rahab. And yet, what is Solomon in the line of the tribe of Judah, which is going to be the Davidic line, which is going to be the line of the Christ, Jesus? There is a picture of the heavenly husbandman in here. He marries a prostitute, Rahab, from Jericho, a Gentile. Remember Boaz, the righteous man from Bethlehem who married Ruth, the Moabitess. So, in God's picture, that he gives throughout the ages, he shows us something. He shows us the legalities. He shows us righteousness. He shows us justice. And then he shows us something that triumphs over it. He shows us mercy. And in that mercy, we see a greater fulfillment of his righteousness. In other words, here's the letter of righteousness. Sure, you can focus on that, but it can't save you. But I'm going to show you the spirit of righteousness, and it's love. And in his love we are saved. Not in the letter of his law, but in the, le- in the life of his love. In the spirit of love, he saves us. If we were judged according to the letter, we're all cut off. We're all Rahab. We're all Ruth. We're all outside the commonwealth of Israel. We have no access to the Savior. But in the very lineage of the one who will come and reveal that love to us, we see this incredible picture. Remember Hosea, the prophet of Jehovah, who, though his wife Gomer, gave herself unto utter wickedness. I mean, it's terrible what this woman gave herself to, even though she was married to Hosea. He lovingly sought her rescue and the reconciliation of their love relationship. Why is this story in the Bible? Does it have any benefit to us? Well, of course, we know why it's in the Bible. It shows us Hosea with a capital H. You see, Hosea, I think I have it here, the name Hosea, this is actually, in the Hebrew, the very same name that Joshua had before he was given the name Yehoshua, which is, then became Yeshua in history, lest anyone, any Jew accidentally say the name Jehovah, accidentally in saying his name. But this basically means, this is based on the verb Yasha in the Hebrew, And it means to save, or as a noun, savior, or salvation. So we have this picture of a character in the Old Testament, a prophet of Jehovah, who has a wife who is unfaithful. And justly, according to the law, he can cut her off. But instead, he pursues her. That's just incredible. You see, mercy triumphs over judgment. This is Jesus, by the way. 
On the day you were born, your navel was not, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you, but you were thrown out into an open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. This is God speaking to Israel. And he says, you were cut off. You had no one to care for you. You were born in sin. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you while you were in sin, while you were cheating on me, while you were snubbing your nose at me, I said to you, live. He expressed his love to us. He commended his love to us even while we were yet snubbing him. That is a form of mercy and love that is hard to grasp. And it's because our ways are not his ways. You see, if we were to reason through this story of God in our own humanity, we would have cut ourselves off. That's why it's hard to understand the good news. We are deserving of being cut off. And if we were in God's position, we would have cut ourselves off. Praise God that God's ways are not our ways. Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. See, I know how you think and I know how you reason. I reason and I think very differently than you. Nor are your ways my ways. You would have cut them off. And I'm here to tell you that though they are Gentiles, I have not cut them off. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel hinges upon what I'm sharing with you today. You see, God has a desire for us. The way that I am moved when I ponder my life with Leslie. I, I ponder that shared pillow. I ponder all those moments of sharing in the fellowship of sufferings together. The intimate bond I have with this woman is something that I could not convey to you easily. I could give descriptions of it. I could give metaphors of it to try and get you to link to it, but all of them would fail. And the same is true with me attempting to convey to you how good this news is. That though we could have been cut off and though we should have been cut off, his ways are not our ways. And though according to the just decree of God, we deserve death and annihilation, he has seen fit to add a but to the end of the sentence. And to say, but I love you. And I want to share my pillow with you again. I created you to be nose to nose with me. You give me your breath and I'll breathe my breath into you. You see, that picture is what we were built for. That's why we're here. And he's not going to give up without a fight. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what I've done is I've swapped out some pronouns here and I've put Hosea and Gomer in. If you're wondering who you are in the story, you're not the savior. You're Gomer, which technically means fruitcake. So uh, that's, that's us. <laughs> For when we, Gomer, were still without strength, in due time, Christ, Hosea, our Savior, died for the ungodly, his Gomer. 
For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, defiled gomers, Christ, Hosea, our wonderful, beautiful, merciful Savior, died for us. The epic return of the divine breath. There's a few of you in here that have loved to linger in Ezekiel 37. There's just something about the story of the Valley of Dry Bones that it's so epic. I mean, you need a Steve Rosen movie score soundtrack behind it. I don't, I don't know if he's ready to play something right now as I read this. Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around and behold, there were very many in the open valley and indeed they were very, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? Now we know by what's about to happen that these were not just bones of like dead cattle, horses, sheep, goats. These are humans. These are human bones. Something terrible has happened here. Something horrible has happened because death is seen everywhere you look. These are bones that are bleached in the sun. They are very dry. When you have a pile of bones, bones are the exact opposite of life. What, what Ezekiel is seeing and what God is showing Ezekiel is a symbol of death, destruction. These guys died, probably in a war. Hostile enemy took them down. This is a symbol of the nation of Israel, symbol of all of us. All of us that were intended to have life and were intended to have the breath of God in us. Instead, this is who we are. Right now, we can look at ourselves while we lived in sin, and we can say, I'm alive. Yeah, I have small bee breath. But this is what we look like in the global picture. This is what we actually are. We're a valley of just bones, very dry. Uh, Can these bones live? You can answer that question. Have you ever seen bones live? Once bones are cut off from the breath, Once the life is removed from that body, it doesn't turn back the other way. So we can declare legal judgment on this situation and say, you guys are dead. You're dead in your trespasses. You deserve it. It's over. But it's not over for God, and that's what God wants Ezekiel to hear, and he wants Ezekiel to pass on to the people of Israel, and he wants it to be canonized so that we would hear it today. And after all these centuries, we would hear the same message of hope. So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. How do bones hear anything? Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you. You shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise and suddenly a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them and the skin covered them over. But there was no breath in them. Also he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath. Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O capital B breath. And breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and stood upon their feet an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. We ourselves are divorced from the divine. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. What is he going to do? You see, we as the church of Jesus Christ understand this far better than the nation of Israel understood it back then. Because this is a picture of what the Messiah what the heavenly husband has come to do. He has come to clatter the bones together, 
to build a body. There was the body of death. And Paul says, who can save me from this body of death? Dry bones, bones that have no life in them, bones that have no ability to please God, bones that are justly cut off from the divine, from the presence, from the shared pillow. Who can save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. He clatters our bones together, that which was dead, that which was decaying. He does something to it. He speaks to it. And what comes about is the body of Christ. But the body of Christ, though it be an exceeding great army, is meant to function in the strength and the power, not of itself, not of its own sinew and strength, but of the strength of the capital B breath that God desires to dwell within it. I will put my spirit in you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Return, O Gomer, return. I don't know about you, but the name Gomer is not very attractive. Uh, And I shouldn't say that. There's probably someone named Gomer here. Uh, But I remember when uh, Leslie and I had Hudson. Hudson was in the womb, and we were with some friends. And this little girl came in. She says, I have a name, because we didn't have a name for Hudson yet. Uh, and so I have a name for him. He's a, he's a little boy, so she knew that. And this is what she proposed, Esau. It's like, oh, well, you know, I, that's, that's interesting. Uh, thank you for the proposal. I, I can't guarantee you that it's going to be Esau. <laughs> well, that's like Gomer. In other words, they're bad characters. You don't want to name your kid after a bad character. However, we were bad characters. That's why the story of Jacob is so profound. Technically, though he comes across as a hero in the story, he was a bad guy. What Jacob was doing was not too hot. And so the name Jacob is actually pretty precious. It's a redeemed name. It's a statement of all of us. We're Gomer. We're Jacobs. We're ones that God is pursuing and God desires to take and make as a picture of himself. Return, O Gomer, return. This pillow was made for two. Please share your breath with me, small b breath, and I'll share my capital B breath with you. God has a desire to share his life with you. There are some in here right now that feel that they're an unredeemable Gomer. You know, justly speaking, you would be right. The devil loves to speak the law to us. You're undeserving. Look at what you've done. Even though you knew about Jesus, you still went and did that. You can fill in the blank. And yet, though the devil will play the law card, God this morning wants you to hear the mercy card. You see, the number one proof that God desires us is that we desire him. I've always said this. This is the number one proof. If you desire to change your life and to have Jesus have your life, then whatever the devil whispers and says, oh, it's too late. It's a bunch of bunk. Because if it was too late, you wouldn't even desire God. You know that you didn't desire God in the first place? You just wanted to live for self and for pleasure? Now suddenly you desire God. The number one evidence that the Spirit of God has not forsaken you and that is he is pursuing you, is the fact that you want to be saved. Is the fact that you desire to get out of this miserable life. You want to return to Hosea. You just can't imagine that he wants you. However, this message is meant to bring to you your understanding the fact that Salmon wants Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho. That Boaz delights in Rahab, the Moabitess from the enemy country of Gentiles, and that Hosea desires with every fiber of his being for Gomer to simply return. This is the heart of Jesus Christ towards every single one of us. So I don't care how dark your life has gotten. If you have that desire, even if it be latent, even if it be small, and you're like, oh, God, take me, please, I'm a Gomer. I want, I want to know you as my Hosea. I want, I want your, your breath in me.
His answer is yes. I'm just telling you right now, his answer is yes. In fact, it's not just a yes like, all right. It has a Jewish dance with it. Shouts, and he gets the angels all riled up. He's like, come on, guys, let's go. It's big news in heaven. The good news is not just good to us. But when anyone responds to it, it sets forth a celebration. This is just plain good news. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Fact. The way I say it is God is not capricious. When I was in uh, junior high, we had something, some of you, this will date some of you in here, where you stick your hand out for the handshake, and then someone comes to take your hand, and you go, psych. Remember that? Some of you are like, I don't remember it. I don't remember it. <laughs> oh, you do. You remember that. Very embarrassing, I know. And that's called capricious. You're acting like you're a friend. And you want to actually cause them to look like the fool. When they reach out, there's nothing worse than trying to shake someone's hand and they pull away and you're just like out here hanging. God doesn't do that to us. God is not capricious. He says, take my hand. So can I trust you, God? I cannot lie. I am interested in saving your life. If you will reach out to me, I guarantee you, you will find salvation. He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. He is a rewarder. He will reward anyone who reaches out and takes his invite. That's the sort of husband we are talking about. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? You see, Jesus is the purest reflection of the father. And so he's, he's showing how a father, even an earthly father, would respond to a son. Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give you, capital B, breath, to those who ask him? You see, in a scripture like this, there are multiple facets that you can look at. When you came to Jesus Christ, it was the Holy Spirit that very breath that was working on you. And when you repented and believed, it was the Holy Spirit that was actually enabling that work within you of salvation. The breath is at work, and there's a pipeline that you're connected to that is pressurized, full of God's life, his breath, his spirit. It's his very life, his love, his joy that he wants to give you. But now you need to begin to live this life And that's where the asking comes in. You need to say, God, I know that you've given me everything I need to live this life. And so I know you're a good father. I want to share that pillow with you. Some of you have access to the pillow. You're just not sleeping there. You still are sort of used to your own way of doing things. You don't want the difficulties in life. And so you complain instead of lean down and lay down next to Jesus and stick your nose next to his. And say, God... Here's my breath. Would you give me yours in exchange for that? There's something very special about going through difficulties on a shared pillow with Jesus Christ. Where you lay there and there's an ache. It's hard. It's hard to go through this life. There are moments that are so full of agony you can't imagine that you can live another day. And yet, when you lay down and share a pillow with Jesus and stick your nose next to his, and you go, Here's my ache. He gives you what's called in Scripture the consolation back. It's his breath. It's his Holy Spirit for that very circumstance. It's his life. It's his answer. It's his sustenance. It's his courage. It's his boldness. It's his love. And that's how we live as Christians. If you're living on your own pillow, I tell you what, that's a rough way to live. But if you're living, sharing a pillow with Jesus Christ pretty special because even the difficulties, even the challenges, even the trials and the tribulations turn into greater strength because in those challenges, you have access to capital B, breath. The pipeline full of capital B, it's there. Everything you need for life and godliness. So, do you desire it? Do you desire that breath? 
I guarantee you the one who is offering it to you is not going to slap your hand when you do. God, I, I want to be where you are. I want to share my life. I've been trying to do my life on my own. I've been trying to live by my own lower B, lowercase b. I need your capital B to do this. It's no wonder life is so hard for you. You're working in your own lowercase b. Come on, guys. Meanwhile, the capital B is available to us. The breath of life. He came to bring it back to us. He has not given up on you. In fact, it's altogether opposite of what the devil's been whispering. He desires you with every fiber of who he is. So let's go after him today. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.